This is episode seven with Carly Crew, a mom anxiety coach, family physician, and a mother of twin girls. When you don't take care of yourself, you have nothing to even be a good version of yourself for those people. Hey moms, are you tired of being tired? Or maybe yelling at your kids? Or maybe you need to know how to get your strength back postpartum? Or learn to manage your stress trying to do it all? Or just to become a more confident mom? If so, then welcome to Citrus Love, keeping motherhood inspired. I'm Christiane Bégin, a mother of two, sharing inspiring conversations with wonderful people on how we can be mentally and physically stronger moms, and also including freshly squeezed ideas, a little bit of fun, so you can learn how to find balance, and also how to raise strong, caring, confident kids in today's world. So if you're ready, let's get started. Okay, get ready for this episode because it's real talk about mom anxiety. And I even get a little bit uncomfortable at a certain point of the episode because Carly gets real honest. She she gives it to me like straight. It's good because you'll learn a thing or two definitely in this episode. So Dr. Carly Crew, she is a family doctor, emergency doctor, delivers babies, anxiety coach, a busy mom of twin toddlers. So if there's one person to tell us mothers how to deal with her daily stress, she definitely knows a thing or two. So she is an anxiety coach for moms who feel overwhelmed, burnt out, running after time, and never-ending to-do lists. She helps mom ditch their perfectionism and people-pleasing. Yes, we've all been there, done that. She is helping mothers reclaim their power. Are you ready for more calm, less shame, less guilt, and less overwhelm? You can sit around waiting and wishing because that day will never happen if you don't start taking action. Here are a few things we talk about in this episode. We being ruthless with our energy and time. Having choices. Venting. That's one thing I wanted to know. Is it really good to vent or not? And she has an important side note for this. We talked about living aligned with our values and setting boundaries. Some of these boundaries will be tough. We also talk about how you might be numbing your own anxiety or avoiding them. What to do first. She gives us some tools. Insomnia. Okay, hello mothers. We all go through this. You're still not sleeping. What is going on? And we talk about so much more. Honestly, this is an episode you don't want to miss and anyone can benefit from it, how to manage our anxiety. So please share it with someone you know that would also benefit from this. Don't forget to check the show notes below this episode or go to our website www.citruslove.com slash this episode to get the courses that Carly is giving You'll find included as a bonus PDF, Carly's Mom Manifesto, which I've included because it is really beautiful and inspiring to read. So I hope you enjoy it and let's get started. Carly Crew, welcome to Citrus Love, the podcast. I'm really, really excited about today's conversation. So we'll be talking about specifically mom anxiety 
anxiety because for sure every mother experiences this. <laughs> it just comes with the responsibility, I guess, of being a mother. It doesn't matter if you have one child, two, three, four, we all feel this. And even without kids, we feel it too. So mm -hmm. I'm happy to talk about, about different aspects of this and how we can find better tools to cope with our anxiety. So Carly, you're a family doctor and an anxiety coach and a busy mom of twin girls. How old are they now? They're going to be three on Sunday. Three. three. Yeah. So if there's one person who can talk to us about <laughs> being mother and, and dealing with anxiety and daily daily stress that you're a good person for that so <laughs> well happy. definitely I'm busy and I have a lot on the go and uh and yes. I've definitely dealt with anxiety myself in um probably my whole life but definitely got much worse in the po in my postpartum period Yes. So you're a family doctor. You work with emergency inpatients. You deliver babies. And now you're doing anxiety and mental health coaching with mothers. Um, mm -hmm. That's quite a few important responsibilities you have on your plate now. Why did you decide to make the jump part-time as an anxiety coach or specifically for mothers? Was there a need that you saw was missing in what you were currently doing? Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for asking. So um, I alluded to earlier a little bit that I had had uh, probably some high kind of high functioning anxiety before having my kids. Um, but it was like the kind of anxiety that, you know, pushed you towards success and didn't really get in the way. And, you know, like that sort of, you know, you were afraid, I was mm -hmm. afraid of failure. And so I, you know, pushed myself to study hard and all those sorts of anxieties. Um, but when I had my twins, my anxiety disorder took a bit of a different turn and I became quite, quite um, sick with postpartum mental illness um, mm. and specifically anxiety. I just, I now kind of lump postpartum mental illness and I call it just postpartum distress because I think um, sometimes separating it out into labels makes people feel like they have to fit into a box. You know, and your postpartum mood experience might be a little bit of depression, might be a lot of anxiety, um, might even extend something as serious as psychosis. But anyways, so um, so I struggled pretty bad with that, and I was sick for a really long time um, with postpartum anxiety. And um, it took me a long time to one recognize the signs in myself, which was a bit ironic, considering I worked with women with their mental health, you know, with with everyone along the spectrum of uh, life with their mental health in my family practice beforehand but I didn't really recognize the signs in myself. So I eventually got some help, got some support, got some different treatments and therapies and started to feel like myself, realized I wanted to help other women through what I had been through. And from a place of knowing what it was like because I'd been there and helping them see some of the strategies that I, I used and now continue to use and teach them how to apply different kind of mindsets and strategies so that they can feel like they're in more control of their worry and more control of their anxiety because I think it plays a bigger role in a lot of mothers lives than they think mm -hmm. it does I mm -hmm. think there's so much of motherhood that we assume is just part of motherhood like feeling constantly irritable and keyed up and tense and headaches and chronic fatigue and all these different things that we just feel like are supposed to be part of motherhood and I'm really passionate about telling women that that doesn't necessarily have to be how your motherhood experience is defined mm -hmm. 
So in my practice as a family doctor, I was working with women. And um, when I came back from my maternity leave, (laughs) um, I was helping a girlfriend go through what I had been through. And she said, like, you need to do this more. You need to, you know, I was calling her and talking to her like almost on a weekly basis and working through whatever she was working through with her. And she said, you need to do this with more women. Like you need to be able to do this with more women. And I said to her, I'm like, I do this all the time with women. And she said, but not like this. And the limits within the office are different, right? Of course I can Mm. help and I'm the same person in the office as I am, but I don't have the amount of time or the you know depth that I can get to with a woman in coaching so she said you should be a life coach you should look into it and um and so I did and I started learning a little bit about the beautiful differences between you know what I do as a consultant physician and what I do as an anxiety coach and and just figuring out how I could apply both of those things and help women in in whatever way they needed me the best mm-hmm. so that's when did that tipping point point come for you you said uh after you had like postpartum you had depression anxiety Mm -hmm. um what made you like it was too much like you had to get help there were so many things there were so many things um but I think it was honestly I remember sitting on the living room floor crying and I was calling actually Alberta and I think Canada-wide they have the physician and family support program um through the Alberta college and the Canadian Medical Association And I remember calling because I was finally like, something's not right. This isn't how I'm supposed to be feeling. And I remember feeling like thoughts like I, you know, my family would probably be better off without me and who, whoever thought I was going to be able to do this. Um, And these sorts of thoughts that are really terrifying, right. As a new mom. And so I realized right then at that time, among other things during those last, those, those weeks that, you know, I wasn't doing well and I wasn't healthy. And and I remember saying to my husband, I don't think I signed up for this, right? When I, when I wanted to be a mom, this wasn't what I expected it to be like. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I was not getting, you know, I had great supportive people around me, but without, without hearing from them, you know, this isn't what motherhood's supposed to be like. I thought that's just what it was, right? I thought that kind of just mm-hmm. going through the day-to-day, feeling exhausted, feeling, you know, worthless, feeling uh, guilt and shame and anger, like unbelievable amounts of anger and rage towards like my newborns, right? Like I, di- I didn't. I knew that that didn't feel right. It didn't feel natural. Like that wasn't supposed to be part of motherhood, but I didn't know how bad it was. Mm. I remember being in the hospital postpartum after my cesarean and um, I think it was day two and the nurse came in at like three in the morning and I was just sobbing, right? And I remember feeling like, what had I done? Like, what had we done? Why did, why was this, like, why would, did somebody tell me this was a good idea? You know what I mean? I remember <laughs> saying those words and, and she looked at me and she said, honey, this is when the tears come. And I, I, w- I was like, that also was not in the brochure for like what this was supposed <laughs> to look like, right? So, um, so I, I think there was a part of that for sure. But I honestly feel like that morning process of like grieving what your life used to be, I feel like I was way too much in a vortex of emotional mm. dysregulation and, you know, like an anxiety and depression in those first few months to actually think about that. But I mm-hmm. think later on, as I went through the healing process and realizing that, you know, there was lots of things in my life that were different. I think that probably came a bit later on, but. Mm-hmm. So you're an anxiety coach and you call it evidence-based coaching informed Mm -hmm. by whole person coaching philosophy to help you discover your inner resources um, to find solutions that work. So how does this look like for someone that's coming to you, a mother 
with anxiety, what different methods do you use um, to help them? Are there specific steps or? So there um, is, there's like, uh, I mean, it's, it's unique to each yes, client, yes. which is all uh, that coaching is, but yeah, I was trained through world uh, coach training world, which is a whole person coaching program that looks at parts of your, um, you know, being or self that might be in out of balance. Mm-hmm. Um, and might need to be kind of brought to the light and heard. And so I use a lot of kind of, um, past and futuring with clients looking forward to where do we want to go or looking back to where did we learn what we are doing now. And, um, and so I do that quite a bit. I also do a ton of belief work with clients. Mm-hmm. This has been probably one of the most powerful things that I've done. Um, with people is that really examine the underlying beliefs about their anxiety and what they believe about it and their relationship to it and mm-hmm. the impact it has on your life. Because like almost 95% of the people I work with initially want their anxiety completely gone. They hate it. They don't want it to have any impact on their life. They're sick of it, right? All very natural feelings. Yes. When really one of the first steps that I almost walk all of my clients through is more of a process of understanding and acceptance that your anxiety is a part of you. You know, you actually, it does have benefits for you to a point it's trying to help you and start to see some of the more positive things so that you can accept it and learn from it and really integrate the management of your anxiety into your life on an ongoing basis. Because Mm -hmm. that's realistically what I've done and what I help my clients do and what they feel better. Right. It's, it's like, I would love to tell you, and I, and this is why you won't ever find, you know, in any of my captions, me saying, I'm going to take your anxiety away. Because Um, that's not possible. That's not possible. uh, Right. And so some people are, you know, I remember when I was learning marketing and stuff and, and people would say to me, you know, you probably shouldn't write that you're going to teach them how to manage it. They want it to be gone. And I'm like, yeah, but I'm not going to lie because it's not going to go away. It's going to stay. And what you're going to need to do instead is learn how to manage it. I think about it kind of like weight management or lifestyle, right? Like, like if you're learning how to manage your weight, when you get to a point that you realize that like a fad diet or a crash diet or a certain thing is not going to cut it, right? You're never going to reach a point at which you no longer have to manage your weight. Mm-hmm. right? It's a lifestyle change. Yeah. It's something that's yeah. going to be incorporated into your life on an ongoing basis. And if you're a person who identifies with having high anxiety, then that's going to be something you're going to have to manage on a really long-term basis. And mm-hmm. I, I also liken it to something like diabetes, right? It's just an illness, just like diabetes. And so the things you track, you know, I'm a physician, so obviously I talk about what we track and things like that in diabetes. But, you know, if you're tracking your sugar going up and down and you're using the appropriate medicines or, you know, strategies to bring it down or up, whichever it needs to be, it's the same with anxiety. You're just tracking it on an ongoing basis and then using strategies that you know that will help it go down or, you know, help it stay away longer, those sorts of things. So it's an ongoing management process. Yeah. So I was looking online, um, prepping this interview, uh, just to see like for fun, the, if I put like mom anxiety, what kind of heads, headlines would come up. Mm-hmm. And there were tons and tons. And just as an example of what you're seeing as headlines, one is why millions of mothers are overwhelmed by stress signs you're burnt out as a mom today anxiety one the invisible workload of motherhood is killing me drowning in parenting stress motherhood overwhelmed me and my marriage motherhood forced me to face my anxiety 
when your anxiety makes you an angry mom. Mm -hmm. So there's like tons and tons of articles. And even I found one that says new research suggests saving U.S. mothers should be a national priority. Like Mm -hmm. it's insane. And you talked about belief audit. Um, Can you talk more about that? And how often should we audit our beliefs or how powerful of a tool is that uh, to best serve mothers? Yeah. So it's, um, if you're not familiar with doing belief work, it kind of seems like a very nebulous concept. Mm -hmm. Um, But if you've worked with a coach, most often people are like looking at the underlying beliefs of why you're stuck wherever you are. And now I'm going to pause only to say that anxiety, having anxiety is not a choice. It's not something that you are wrong if you have it. And it's not like you're doing something wrong if you do have it. So, so when I talk about belief work, I'm not saying that the beliefs you're holding are intentional beliefs that are keeping you stuck in a pattern. I'm just saying that we can use our, you know, some belief work to examine how we might overcome our anxiety or how we might manage it differently, right? So, so for example, if you carried a belief like, I just need my anxiety to go away, my anxiety is ruining my life. I would dig into that belief with you and try to disprove that belief in your mind, right? And figure out how, what, what do you need so desperately bad for progress and how, what do you need to unbelieve now? So it's a bit confusing, but for example, I'll use another example to make it a bit more clear. But so I had one of my clients who was, um, you know, dealing with some alcohol use difficulties and that was her buffering strategy for when she was feeling very anxious. And she carried a belief with her that the only way she could cope with her anxiety and her pain was to have a drink of alcohol. And that was a belief. It wasn't that she was choosing to have it. It's just that that's what her pattern of behavior had taught her. So she was walking around with this belief thinking, oh, I I can't cope without alcohol. I can't cope without alcohol. And it took a few sessions for me to get to the point that that was the belief that we were dealing with. Mm -hmm. And then often I'll compare it to what they're looking for. I would ask her, so what would it look like if you didn't have anxiety as this buffering strategy? And she said, well, I would feel better. You know, I would interact with my family and my grandkids more. I would, you know, have, be more engaged in my life because I don't want to be somebody who drinks all the time. Like I want to be, right? And so I usually use a bit of a comparison. So I say to them, and it gets really simple. It's like, you know, you can continue to carry this belief that you need alcohol to cope, or you can have this life that you're dreaming of without alcohol, but you can't have both, mm-hmm. right? And when you put it that way with people, whichever, whatever they're looking at, you can't have both. You can carry that belief or you can purposefully choose to no longer carry that belief, right? Mm-hmm. And, and it takes some unprogramming, right? But this is pretty much the basis. Like any kind of time you do a comparison between what do you really want and what belief is holding you back from that? And do you want to keep believing that, right? Do you want to keep mm-hmm. having that mm-hmm. as a thought? Like, so when you're going through these beliefs, are you just asking questions so they can reflect on it? Because most of the time, I think people don't think twice. They just do it and they don't want to go and mm-hmm. start analyzing because then it might bring up too many exactly. difficult things and yeah. emotions. So Absolutely. That's why private coaching is with me, especially I tell people, I'm like, what? It's, it's, you got to be ready because I really, I don't, I, like I kind of, I'm right in your business. And so we had talked about a lot of deep things and deep pain that she had gone on and where that belief had come from and where that habit had come in, that drinking, you know, habit and that sort of thing. And so, yeah, it, it's 
a dark place. And if she were to ever speak to you, she would tell you that coaching with me was one of the most painful and most powerful experiences she's had because we went places she hadn't gone before, but we brought her to new places as well, Mm -hmm. right? Where she has not been able to cope without alcohol for many, many years. That's just a specific example with addiction. But yeah, a lot of the time it's, it's me kind of doing a bit of investigative work and we dig in and we, we use a lot of, like I said, different strategies, but a lot, but it's so customized to each person. So Mm -hmm. it's clearer when you're doing belief work with a client and, and it's, and as a coach, it's, that's where you figure out, you know, when it's the most effective time to do belief work. That person has to be at the place where they're ready to examine that belief and they're willing to examine that belief because sometimes we have our beliefs for a reason as well, right? Like sometimes Mm -hmm. they're protecting us or, you know, whatever we've, they're learned behaviors. So a little bit about belief work, but that's some of the stuff that I do. You wrote that being a parent is like a form of anxiety. (laughs) And I had never thought of it that way, but it makes total sense being a mom, you get it. But can you explain what does this mean for us mothers, women that are thinking of having a child? Yeah, I talk about your anxiety being kind of like a helicopter parent. And I think if you're familiar with that term helicopter mm-hmm. parent, it's that parent that's like hovering around you all the time and constantly reminding you or reminding their child of, you know, like, don't do that. Oh, don't do that. Oh, don't do that. Don't, you know, like very, very like intrusive and involved in their life and, and not really allowing you to kind of like fall or fail or learn something. I think that's what I post you referencing. And I think about my anxiety like that all the time. I think about it. it and, and the reason why I wrote that post specifically is because a lot of us try to shut out our anxiety when, when it doesn't, um, when it starts to bother us. So if you have anxious thoughts and things, a lot of us try to naturally stop thinking things. Um, but the problem with that is that it actually causes those anxious thoughts to rebound and be louder, right? So when I spoke about it as a helicopter parent, because that's what it reminded me of. So it's like a really, really anxious, you know, parent who, if your child is going to do something that's going to get them, you know, have a problem or a fall, the helicopter parent's like, oh, you shouldn't do that. Are you listening? You probably shouldn't do that. Hey, hey, are you listening to me? Right? Like quite pestering and quite, and, and gets loud and a little bit more obnoxious. Um, that post specifically talks about how you can instead identify what's happening, right? When you identify an anxious thought and then um, recognize it and label it as what it is, right? So, and acknowledge the anxiety. I think of it, it's kind of silly. I almost think of like my anxiety as like another evil twin inside of me or, you know, an, an irritating parrot on my shoulder. I think about that, my anxiety in that way. And so when it comes and it starts nattering at me, you know, like, oh, you can't do that. You shouldn't do that. That's a bad idea. Why are you, what are you thinking? Those sorts of thoughts that are anxious thoughts. I usually just encourage people to recognize it, acknowledge, say, okay, thanks. This is just my anxiety. I hear you. And then replace it with a more adaptive and more calm thought. So thought replacement is a really powerful strategy in any situation, whether it's anxiety about sleep, anxiety about your kids, anxiety about anything. Uh, you can use instead of thought suppression, which is what a lot of us try to do, I encourage thought replacement. So using something that's more reassuring. So Okay, so give me an yeah. example. Yeah, so for example, one anxious thought might be, um, this is going to go terrible. Like, what are you thinking, right? So you're trying to do something new. This is a bad idea. Who do you think you are? And a, a more reassuring thought might be, I can't potentially know the future, but I can do the best I can right? Something like that. Mm. That's just like a more reassuring thought. Or mm-hmm. um, I, I only need to deal with one thing at a time right now. And I trust my future self to deal with the rest, mm. right? Like those sorts of kind of just more reassuring thoughts so that you're replacing those really anxious ones. But the, the trick is not the replacement. The trick is identification. So okay. most women come and talk to me when they're like, yeah, I'll have one thought. And before I even know it, I'm in like this vortex of thoughts mm. and I've fallen into the vortex and I feel terrible. And so I try to work with clients to 
help them identify when that thought kind of be on, on alert for those anxious thoughts before they get sucked into the vortex. And mm-hmm. everybody has their usually like their own unique brand of anxious thought. <laughs> um, and the more, the more aware we can be of them, we can be more alert to like notice, hey, wait a minute, there it is back. So even for example, this morning, I wasn't quite in the vortex yet, but I was identifying them. And I said to my husband, you know, I'm having all these second, second guessing doubts today. And because mm-hmm. my version of, of anxious thoughts are second, doubt, second guessing and doubting. And, you know, and like, is this the right thing? I don't know if I'm doing the right thing. Who do I think I am? This is like too hard. Those sorts of thoughts. Mm-hmm. And so I was able to just like identify that in the moment and be like, oh, okay. I know, what, I know what's happening here. Kind of like you're in on the game. Does that make yeah. sense? Yeah. <laughs> but what if you don't believe what you're replacing it with? You, you might know what you need to say to stop them, but believe what you're saying. Like, okay, this will turn out fine. This will turn out fine. I mean, ideally you would believe it, but the, the reality is that most of us don't believe that's what, like the anxious thoughts are so powerful because we don't have another one that we believe more, which is where the, you know, painful emotional experience of anxiety gets really going. So if you can catch yourself in that moment when you're having an anxious thought and identify it and acknowledge what's happening and say, okay, this is just my anxiety it helps take the power away. It helps take, you know, a little bit of the fear away, Mm -hmm. replace those thoughts with more reassuring thoughts. If you can in the moment, you know, have them kind of planned out. So, and then replace those thoughts with more reassuring things. I know like as a mother, it doesn't matter like how many kids you have or how old often you feel like you have to be everything for everyone else. Like, are my kids happy? Is my partner okay? Like, are my parents are okay? Like you're, you're looking out for everyone's well-being that often you become nothing for yourself because you're Mm -hmm. just depleted. You should feel good. But I've learned that in the end, there's nothing left and you have to make sure that you fill your cup or you don't Mm -hmm. wait until it's empty. I guess like a car, like the gas, you can't wait until it's empty. But I mean, I've dealt with that too, that you sometimes you're just like, I I don't know what to do. Mm -hmm. But I guess realizing that you need to give yourself love and attention and as much care as you do for everyone else. But you said that we have as parents, mothers, we have to become ruthless with our energy and ruthless with our time to create Mm -hmm. an ecosystem that supports our wellness. Can you talk more about that? Mm -hmm. So when you were even saying that just now that, you know, like we as women tend to feel like we are responsible for everyone and making sure everyone's happy. I actually believe that's completely false. I think that we shouldn't be thinking that way. Mm. Um, I think that we're kind of, we've been taught through society or our upbringing or our own kind of belief system. We've just thought, been taught to believe that we're supposed to be these selfless martyrs that, you know, put everybody else before ourselves. And if we're not, if, you know, if our husbands aren't happy, if our children aren't happy, you know, that we're these terrible people or these terrible women and that we should just be sacrificing ourselves for them. And I really believe that's incredibly flawed. Um, And I think that when we realize that we are actually not responsible for everyone else's happiness, that the only happiness that we can be actually can be responsible for is our own, right? You could be like the absolute best, most supportive, loving wife or partner ever, and your husband could still be unhappy and that has nothing to do with you, right? Mm -hmm. So I think once we can realize that we're actually not responsible for everyone else's behavior or everyone else's emotions, we can start to understand what we are responsible for. And when you realize when you are what you are responsible for, it gets easier to be 
like I say, I say ruthless about deciding what you're going to put your energy into and what you're not, right? I'm very good at defining. I know exactly what I'm responsible for in my relationships. So mm-hmm. if someone is, you know, having a bad day or somebody is, you know, having a, you know, a hard week or having a down moment, of course I'm there to support them. By no means am I saying not, don't be supportive, but I'm not going to sacrifice myself to make them feel better. Like I'm not going to, you know, within reason. This makes me sound a little bit heartless, which I'm not. I just mean that I, I'm really, I really strictly define like where my realm of responsibility is and where somebody else's realm of responsibility is. Like your husband is very much responsible for his own happiness and his own well-being just as much as you are. But I think as women, we're somehow we've gotten this tied up in, in being a mother means like, you know, making sure everyone else is happy. And then, like you said, at the end of it, we're left with nothing for ourselves and wonder why we're stressed and chronically anxious. Mm -hmm. Um, when you don't take care of yourself, you have nothing to even be a good version of yourself for those people. And the woman that comes to you for help or the, I mean, mothers you've met, do you feel like they believe that taking care of themselves and everyone's responsible to a certain point of their own happiness? Most people don't think that. Yeah, yeah. And that's exactly what I'm saying. I think there's a difference between being responsible to someone and being responsible for someone. And I make that distinction really clear when I work with clients who struggle with boundaries. So you can be responsible to your loved ones to be loving and supporting, right? Loving, mm-hmm. supportive, honest, trustworthy, all of these characteristics that are within you anyways, right? That's different. You're responsible. To, I'm responsible to my children to be a loving, supportive mother. I'm not responsible for making them happy. Mm. I'm not responsible, right? They're just, they're responsible for making them happy. I'm, I think of it as like responsibility for someone is an ownership position. Mm. So if you have a dog, for example, you are responsible for your dog, right? You're responsible for feeding your dog, for taking your dog to the vet for grooming your dog. But would you refer to your partner or your children in that same way? Like young children, of course, you're responsible for them. Mm-hmm. I'm speaking more about like, you know, the young adult children or even the teen children, because it tends to be as the children get older and start to express more of their individuality that we start to, like they start to have struggles and we feel even more responsible for them. But there's a lot of flaws in that thinking. So there's a difference between being responsible to someone, right? You can be a, a, a mother that's responsible to someone by saying, yes, I'm always going to be here for you. Yes, I'm always going to listen to you. Yes, I'm always going to be supportive and I'm going to try my best to give my advice, but I can't fight your battles for you. I can't, you know, make you exercise so that you can feel healthy for you. I can't do all these things for you. I'm actually not responsible. That's actually completely out of our control, a lot Mm -hmm. of it. But we tend to get the sense that we're responsible for everyone. And then we try to control, like we we're assuming we have more control over things than we do. It's just very messy when you do that. And when I say I'm ruthless with my time and energy, it's because I don't put it in places that one, don't serve my values and the values that I have for my family. And I also don't put myself in a place of feeling responsible for someone else's happiness. So in this case, do you think it's very important to have those discussions with especially your family members, your spouse, your your kids when they're older and more independent? So it's clear, like these are my boundaries. You're taking care of this. I'm doing this because then when there's no clarity, like you said, it can get messy. It's mm-hmm. 
Yeah. I mean, it depends on the situation. I mm-hmm. am a huge proponent of very clear, assertive conversations. And especially with, you know, like those relationships that we all have that can be messy, like mother-in-laws mm-hmm. or husbands, or, you know, like that can be a little bit messy if it's not clear who's responsible for what in that relationship. And of course, I'm not specifically talking about like housework and that sort of thing. I'm talking yeah. about like interpersonal communication. Usually if you're having that kind of messy relationship, it's not the other person who's recognizing it most often. Most often if you're recognizing it, it's because you're realizing that your your kind of your boundary is a little bit loose there, right? You're feeling resentful, you're feeling anxious, you're feeling made to do things you don't want to do, you're feeling whatever this is that you're realizing there's a boundary infringement there. Mm-hmm. It's a, it's a good time to realize like what am I actually responsible for in this relationship and having yeah if it's if it's appropriate in that setting to have a discussion about you know what like I'm actually not responsible but more importantly it's probably yourself understanding it that's the bigger hurdle in that Mm -hmm. it's you know it's like pulling back and really realizing like wow I'm actually not responsible for someone fixing someone's problem right because Mm -hmm. I think what we forget as moms is that sometimes by helping people we're not helping them (laughs) right yeah sometimes by helping our say young adult children or our you know sister who you know makes bad choices or you know it's enabling people to continue to do those things or it's limiting them from actually learning those skills that they need to learn to get through their own problem does Mm -hmm. that make sense yeah it does I know that some some people would see it like they don't care about me Like they're kind of selfish because they don't want to help. But I mean, I I guess you have to just let go of those opinions. It's a judgment they're having. Boundaries and assertiveness are really complicated. Yeah. Uh, We could probably talk for hours about that alone. (laughs) Um, But, and, and I think that the person who thinks setting a healthy boundary means that you don't love them anymore is probably somebody who needs that boundary the most personally. Um, right. And there is a quote that some I've even read on the internet said the person who has troubles with you putting in boundaries are the ones benefiting from you not having any. Right. So if you're just a doormat for everyone, and then all of a sudden you start to say, you know what, like, actually, I can't do that because it's not right for me. The only person that's going to get frustrated with that is somebody who's been benefiting from it. For example, I've had my clients say things like, you know, I'm really working on prioritizing this, like my health, whatever it is, I'm prioritizing X. And if I do this for you, whatever this is, I can't prioritize that. And it's really important to me to prioritize that because I'm starting to feel resentful and I'm starting to feel more anxious, you know? And so I'm I'm really trying to prioritize X, right? Mm -hmm. And so if somebody's like, well, God, like, how dare you? Like, I think they're probably the person who needs the boundary the most, Exactly. (laughs) Because the people who love you the most would be like, oh my God, yes, please go and do that for yourself. Please take care of yourself. Like I never meant to, you know, make you feel like you had to take care of me or something. Right. Yeah, exactly. What's one of the things that is usually that's the most common? So I'm not going to say this is for everyone because I definitely have had clients with lots of different reasons for anxiety. Yes. But passivity is a big one. Um, Passivity. Yeah. Being passive and not speaking up for yourself as a woman is usually in part when I get, you know, into it with people, it's that they have been essentially what we've been discussing. They've been kind of passive they've been putting everyone before themselves they've honorably you know labeled themselves as people pleasers like it's like a good thing right and they're feeling very depleted and worn out because they 
don't think enough of themselves to prioritize themselves sometimes, or they've never been told they're important enough to prioritize. It's a big one. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Do you see that in a specific age group? Yeah. (laughs) yeah. Some of my clients have adult children and I deal, I deal with the same thing with them um, that they have had years and years and years of, and it, it has different flavors. Like maybe it's just that they don't speak up for themselves or they behave in kind of passive aggressive ways because they don't know how to speak assertively about their needs and what they want mm-hmm. um, and what's important for them. And by no means, I think sometimes because I'm so passionate about talking about assertiveness, sometimes it can come off that I'm just encouraging women to like be, be bitchy essentially, right? <laughs> Which I'm not, that's not what I'm saying. I think there's a way to communicate your needs in, you know, in a, in a diplomatic assertive way, right? Assertiveness is so much more than communication. It's also a mindset and so is passivity acting in a passive way, you know, like not speaking up when you have an alternate opinion or just going along with the crowd because it's easier, avoiding conflict, all of those things. That's a communication style as well as it's a mindset. And mm-hmm. when you keep putting yourself second to everyone else's demands all the time in a passive way, your anxiety is going to tell you about it and your anxiety is going to really be severe. There's even a researcher from like hundreds of years ago or a hundred years ago that talked about how passivity, um, what was his quote? Anxiety and assertiveness cannot coexist. Um, Mm -hmm. And and I really believe that. Honestly, I think that one of the biggest ways to overcome anxiety, and that's why I work with women in this, on assertiveness, is assertiveness training. Because assertiveness says that you're, you know, it's a clear mindset of what I'm responsible for, what you're responsible for, and what I'm not responsible for. So for example, Christiana, I'm like, not, like I could say pretty much, you know, anything I wanted on this podcast right now. And yes, I'm responsible for the outcome, but I'm not responsible for how you take that or what you do with it. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. So So when you spoke about somebody, you know, maybe being upset and thinking that they don't love you or you're being unkind for putting in a boundary, like you're actually only responsible for putting in the boundary, how they respond to that actually has nothing to do with you. It's completely on them. Their reaction to it is their responsibility, not yours. Mm -hmm. But what passive people do is they say, oh God, I could never do that. I could never put a boundary in place because so-and-so will then say X, Y, and Z about me and I am responsible for their happiness essentially, right? Mm -hmm. Is what it comes from. They'll be upset. They'll be disappointed. I'll feel guilty. All these thoughts of like, of somebody else's needs being more important than your own. Mm -hmm. That's probably the most common thing that I see among women with anxiety. It's, um, it's the passivity. Yeah. We all know people like that too. It's very common. Um, so let's talk about choices because you say that having the power to choose what you want or you don't want, you say mothers have two options. One, they can either be a victim to it or they can learn to manage it. So talk Mm -hmm. about that. Can you give an example for each of how you can be a victim to it, to a choice and manage it? Yeah. yeah. So this came from that post that you're referencing came, comes from quite a few situations I've been in clinically and in coaching that, and it goes with almost anything that you deal with. So for example, so say you had, you know, have come up against this, I have this anxiety disorder and we all have this kind of decision point. You can choose if you want to, how you handle that, how you decide to handle that. So you can say, okay, I'm going to, um, this sounds really, this is really terrible. I'm a disaster. I'm a mess. Like anxiety is the worst and kind of just be like completely indulging it and just kind of sitting in it and kind of stewing in it. And, oh, it's really terrible. And you're complaining all the time, but you're not really necessarily taking action to do anything about it. Mm -hmm. Okay. That's one option. Or you can be like, okay, 
I have anxiety. So I'm going to take like, I want to be healthy and live with this if I have to have this. So I'm going to learn about it. I'm going to reach out to people who might be able to help me. I'm going to be, you know, an active player. I talk about it as having agency versus app. So a lot of us um, can think of someone who, you know, have kind of like the people who are just have drama around them all the time and they yeah. can't seem to ever fix it. Right? Yeah. And yeah. it's like, well, well, where's your choice in that? Are you, do you believe you have a choice in whether you want to be caught up in that or whether you don't want to be caught up in that? Mm-hmm. And it's a mindset thing, right? I think about it also, like if you were diagnosed with diabetes, it's the exact same, right? If you were diagnosed with diabetes, you could, and of course there'd be an att- like a period of time where you'd probably be a bit upset about it. But what I'm saying is like, after the fact, after you've gone through that a little adjustment period, you could be like, well, I'm a diabetic and just throw your hands up in the air and well, this sucks and not do anything, not monitor your sugar, not do anything and just let yourself deal with the consequences, right? And just felt like sitting in your own misery mm-hmm. um, and just not doing a whole lot. Or you can say, okay, I'm a, I'm, I'm a diabetic and I want to live healthy with this. So I'm going to track my sugars. I'm going to make sure I'm taking my medicine. I'm going to exercise. I'm going to do all these things so that I know I'm actively managing and being an agent in my health. So you're saying like being a victim, you're not taking action, but managing it, you're putting something into action. Yeah. Um, and, okay. and I never want to imply, and I wrote that in the post, like having an illness of any sort is never a choice for people, right? And yeah. I know that like addiction, not a choice, anxiety, not a choice, like all these things we don't have choices in. I'm just saying that you do have a choice in how you handle it, mm-hmm. right? And um, and you can, you know, you can change your mind. Maybe you've gone for years with just kind of not even realizing. A lot of women don't even realize that they're just kind of sitting in it and indulging in it because they don't know any better. Mm-hmm. And that's okay, right? But once you're aware that there's a way could be something better for you to manage it, like take action, be an agent, right? Like be an agent in your own life, take the reins. And so that's the other thing I often say, like be your own leading lady. Like what would a leading lady in a movie do? She wouldn't just be like, oh, this is really terrible. (laughs) She would like, you know, what am I going to do about it? Let's take some action. Let's learn something. Exactly. There's something I've been thinking about and younger, we would vent. We'd call it venting. Basically you're frustrated, irritated, or something happened. You need to talk to someone and just release all the frustration and kind of bounce off someone else. I've heard that this might not be good. It might make it even worse because you're reliving all those negative emotions Mm -hmm. or uh, painful emotions. What's your take on it? I think venting is is very reasonable if you're venting to the right person. So, and that can be tricky to know. But I, when you were saying that, I was thinking back to like my own situation and make sure you're venting to a friend who really has your best interests at heart and who you have a good boundary with and who, you know, understands your venting and understands, right? Because I think sometimes um, venting is very therapeutic. Like, absolutely. I'm all for talking things out, getting things out. Yeah. Let's talk about it. Cause sometimes that in itself can help you feel so much better. Mm-hmm. Um, but sometimes you can walk away feeling worse. Right. And sometimes you need to start evaluating, is it the venting that's the problem or maybe who I'm venting to. Right. Mm. Um, because sometimes people like, you know, if you have these, these individuals in your life who do kind of thrive on drama or thrive on that powerful emotional experience of, you know, seeing someone else really worked up, like they might not actually be super constructive in that moment (laughs) of helping you vent in a healthy way. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, I think if you have, you know, a good solid friend that you can just be like, you know, for example, I have a wonderful friend and I think that all of us at some point, no matter how amazing our marriage is, right. You can get annoyed and you want to just vent, right. But you want to be able to vent to the person that knows that it's just a day. It's just a moment. It's not your marriage. 
right? Yeah. Like you want, and you want to have that friend that's like understands that and isn't like, oh God, maybe their marriage is ending. And then like keeps yes. fueling the fire, right? You yeah. want to just be cautious about who you're venting to. You want to make sure, and I, and I spoke about having healthy boundaries with whoever you choose to vent to. I think sometimes it can be really hard for people to figure out, well, how do I know who I have to have a boundary with? Mm-hmm. And so I do a whole, I have a whole talk on this, but the summary is that if you can think about someone that say you got really great news, there's two parts to this, but say you got really great news. You won something, you got an award, you got an awesome job, something. If there's somebody that you go to with that and you get responses like, oh, must be nice. Good things always happen to you, mm. right? That's a red flag. You should okay. probably start to examine your boundaries in that relationship because like if you and I were talking, Christiane, and you were like, I own this awesome thing. Like our boundaries are pretty clear. Like I don't have any responsibility for your life. So I'm just like, that's awesome, right? Your good things happening to you have nothing to do have no imprint, imprint on you. Ah, got it. Right? Whereas, and, and it goes the other way. So if you have somebody who you tell your kind of like negative things to, like I really messed up or, you know, I have this kind of thought in me that's very tender and I don't want a lot of people to know and it's one of my weaknesses or it's one of my flaws. If that person then takes that in, you know, doesn't protect it, that's somebody you also have to be aware of and you put more boundaries in place, right? So again, mm-hmm. if you have somebody, a good friend with boundaries, think about how they are going to behave with you. So for the kind of weak spot thing, for example, if you went to, you know, with your best friend to a party and something came up that your best friend knew was a weak spot for you, a healthy best friend is going to protect that. They're not going to bring that out in public. They're not going to poke fun at you. They're not going to, you know, bring that up. Oh, remember when that happened? Ha ha. And bring it out in front of people, right? Mm-hmm. They're going to try to make deter- move the conversation somewhere else or not even talk about it or whatever, right? They're going to protect that soft spot. Mm-hmm. And that's somebody, mm-hmm. that's a good person that has good boundaries. You can have a less boundaries with me, right? Yeah. Whereas somebody who does poke at that or finds those things that you have shared about or vented about in a venting session and then brings them up again and kind of uses them against you, that's also a sign that maybe a better boundary Mm. needs to be put in place. What happens if that person who takes that and throws it in a sarcastic comment, what if that's a family member or relative Mm. that you know you can't, I mean, you have to be careful uh, the boundaries because you know eventually you'll see that person again and be in contact maybe regularly. What happens with that? Why can't you say anything? No, I'm, my okay. question is, is oh. that I'm just challenging that thinking, right? Because I believe that it doesn't like, yes, it matters. It and I love my family. But what I'm saying is it doesn't really matter who it is, family member or not. So okay. if somebody's treating you badly, you get to define whether like what your involvement is with that person. That in itself is a boundary. Mm. Okay. So what I'm saying is like, yes. So one of the, a couple of the people that I had to put really good boundaries in were very close family members of mine. And it wasn't easy. I'm not going to tell you it ever is easy. It was super uncomfortable for a lot of months, but it's getting to a point in your life where, you know, if you're like, okay, I want to have a relationship with this person, but I don't like this one, right? Like, like your mother, for example, or your mother-in-law or something like that. Like you have to have a relationship with this person, but you don't have to be abused in that relationship. You can still decide what that looks like. And if they want to participate in a relationship with you, this is the, like, this is kind of how it needs to go from now on. So Mm -hmm. I know that's a bit like we're opening a real big can of worms here with mother-in-law comment. Um, (laughs) But this is something I work with people on a lot. Like, do you want to have a relationship with a person who treats you badly just because they're family? Mm, okay. I think it's a really important question. I'm not saying don't be friends yeah. with your family members and don't spend time with them. I'm just saying that you have more say than you think you do. Okay. And one example of this is that um, I remember having a conversation about a family member, a close family member. And I remember my sister saying something about, you know, well, we don't really have a choice, do we? Mm-hmm. Because the feeling was like, well, we don't have a choice what this family member says. And it was like kind of a light went off in my head like, wait a minute, wait a minute. 
why do I feel like I don't have a choice right now? Right? Because I'm being passive. So you always have a choice. And really, there's not nearly any relationship, I would, you know, be brave to say, there's not really any relationship that you can say you do not have any choice in. Because if you do, then I think you're probably in a passive mindset. Got it. So that's good. <laughs> I'm going to ruffle a lot of feathers with this podcast. <laughs> you're good. You're just being really honest. <laughs> yeah. You said, be honest. So I will. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> Okay, let's talk about our value. Do you think many mothers feel anxiety about parenting because their ideal of motherhood does not align with their reality? Oh, yeah, for sure. Um, I think we're just told so many lies about what motherhood's supposed to look like. Mm. <laughs> I don't think that, you know, I think we're entering into a new generation of moms that will be a little bit more aware, I think, because of awesome podcasts and, and women media. like you and I who are talking about it, yeah. that we're being honest about it. We're talking about, you know, the realities of like, it's, you know, not great every day and it's really hard and to take off the mask that it's supposed to be easy all the time. Mm-hmm because that mask that we're telling new mothers about is damaging them, right? Yeah. So absolutely, I think the ideals, we've, we usually build up these beautiful ideals in our head before we have children. And God, I would never take anyone's dreaming away. That's the last thing I'd ever want to do is tell someone not to dream about how dreamy motherhood would be. But <laughs> I think, especially in the postpartum period, there's a huge clash between what I thought this was going to be like and what it is like. And then this sense of I'm never getting out of it is really yeah. overwhelming, right? Like I always say to patients, not in a frightening way, but you know, I'm just saying, you know, I'm really excited that you're considering having a family. Just be aware that you can't really take that back. It's not a bad thing, but just be aware right now mm -hmm. so that you can, you can kind of just prepare yourself because it does feel at times very suffocating to yeah. be a mother. How would right? you, you tell a mother to be a pregnant woman or a woman that's listening that wants to have kids? How can she prepare herself for motherhood? Because I know for myself, I base what motherhood would be like based on my mom, who was a stay-at-home mm -hmm. mom, like very conservative. She did everything, cooking, sewing, right. was at yeah. all the activities. And I enjoyed having her around. So I always viewed motherhood as this fun thing. Of course, right. I'm going to be a mom like yeah. who wouldn't want to be a mom I never had a really honest conversation with her before I had a child and I was I'm living like across the country from my family so I didn't have all that support and it just hit me I'm like mm -hmm. how come no one talked to me uh -huh. about this I had yes. to deal with all of these emotions and what was really happening and what it was so hard it was It's so, so hard. hard yeah It's in that story, like, thank you for sharing that. Because I think that's really why I do a lot of what I do is because that's what I've heard so often. Why did no one tell me about this? Mm -hmm. Why did no one tell me this was? And, and there's two parts. One, I think probably we're not talking about it enough. And that's why I love that we are talking about it more. But two, there's a bit of a pregnancy bubble that even I went into, right? Like, I feel like pregnancy is the first time a woman gets exposed to the most unsolicited advice of her whole life. Yes. And so you get into a bubble of like, please don't talk to me and tell me things. My mind, like your mind is not open to hearing it anyway. Mm -hmm. So unless you're, you know, one of these women that's like, oh, I've heard it's really hard. I'm going to learn about everything I can. Like you have to be a certain, in a certain mindset to actually be open to hearing it because I talk to my pregnant moms all the time. And I still think it's not that I, they don't, want to hear me it's that they actually probably just aren't there yet 
right? Yeah. Sometimes you just need to be in the phase before you realize like what it's like, but until you're open to yes. hearing it. Yes. Does that make sense? Like you have to meet people where they are and sometimes yes. they're just not open to hearing it. And um, also, uh, I think like, even if you read books about it, living it, it's, it's totally different. with the emotion, totally different, totally different. Yeah. 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 And it's so true. That's like very true. So I don't remember what your initial question was, but, um, (laughs) but yeah, no, I think your experience is really, really common and I don't know how to fix that. I don't know how, because the last thing we also want to do, like I said, I'd never want to take anyone's dreams away about what motherhood is like. And the last thing we want to do is like go up to them and be like, do you know how terrible this is going to be? Because nobody (laughs) wants to hear that. And it's not always terrible, right? Like it's not, we do love motherhood. It's just, I think my best, that was your question. I think my best advice, I have advice for pregnant women as well in my, you know, prenatal class and stuff. Mm -hmm. I, I always say to them, labor is pretty much like nothing you've ever experienced before. Mm-hmm. And to that effect, you almost can't prepare for it mm-hmm. because what happens to you and that level of pain and that emotion you've probably never experienced before. So you can't predict what you're going to want in that moment. Mm-hmm. And so I always say to them, the best advice I have is to just have an open mind, right? Have no expectations. <laughs> like, And that's what I tell them about motherhood. Just be open to whatever happens and try to avoid having any expectation because mm-hmm. I think it's expectations that are the root of, you know, disappointment, you know, like that ex- when we expect something to be a certain way and it's not, it really can be devastating. Mm-hmm. And motherhood is very similar unless you've done it before. And sometimes even if you have done it before, it's still different every time. And so it's really hard to genuinely prepare other than to say, make sure you have your support in place, make sure you have lots of people, mm-hmm. because you might need it more than you think, you might not need it at all. But make sure you have some support, somebody you can call and lean on, make sure you have an open mind, and try to have as least little expectations as you can. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. How would you describe the visual of a mother who's um, living fully aligned with her values versus someone that's not? Um, so when I speak about being fully aligned with your values, it's about realizing what's most important in your life and making decisions in support of it all the time. The only examples I can think of are from my own life. So for example, I prioritize my mental health, mental health and physical health for myself and my family are a priority for me. And that's a value for me. Mm-hmm. So I live aligned to that in that we, we maintain healthy habits. I exercise every day. I'm choosing to live in alignment with the fact that that's a value for me. When you're living out of alignment, you're saying something like, you know, um, my health is really important to me, but then not prioritizing it and allowing other things to be more priority, right? So when, and, and a big part of it is, again, going back to, you know, assertiveness and passivity, when you're living aligned with what you genuinely feel in the deepest parts of your soul or mm-hmm. this is right for me, that you, you know, pursue it really fearlessly and somebody being disappointed or, or being mad at you or any of those things, like it doesn't matter as much because you know what your values are. Mm-hmm. No one can tell you what you should be doing because you feel so assured in your sense of your own values. And I'm not saying it could be anything, right? It could be your belief structure. It could be that it's yours. It's mm-hmm. no one else's. No one's mm-hmm. imposing beliefs on you. Mm-hmm. One example I have for myself, my husband and I have decided to completely sell our home and downsize into a fifth wheel trailer. <laughs> and the, how that came about was a lot of different things, but one of the biggest ones, one of the biggest takeaways 
takeaways I found from it was that there was a lot of having a home that wasn't what our plan had been. Like it was, but it was almost like a social script we had been told. You know, you grow up, you go to, you get education, you get a good job, you buy a house, you buy a bigger house, you're happy, right? Mm -hmm. That's kind of like a a script, a social script that we're told that's like how you define success. Mm -hmm. But what I, what we realized more and more is that like, that wasn't aligned with our values. Our values were like of adventure and freedom and being able to travel with our kids, doing different things. Those are things we value. And we were living out of alignment with that. Why were we carrying this huge mortgage that doesn't allow us to travel because we have to pay for this house all the time and we're never, you know, like all these different things. Why am I sacrificing things that I love, like travel that really, really fulfill my soul and really, really are part of our values in place of like buying plants for the front step when like that is not (laughs) aligned with my values. Do you know what I mean? Or like spending our afternoons, like cutting the lawn and doing the, I loathe that. So why am I doing it? right? So that's what I talk about when I'm saying like, if you're doing things in your lives that you're like, why am I doing this? Mm -hmm. Right? Like you're probably not very aligned with your values. And I encourage you to take a hard, scary, don't get me wrong. It's terrifying. Look at, you know, are we, am I living my life? Are we living our life in alignment with our values? Because a lot of the time we get going on this highway, right? We get going on a highway of of a certain type of life before we realize like we're in the wrong lane. Like this is not actually what we wanted to do. And it takes a lot of bravery to say, hey guys, like let's pull over, pause, and see if we need a new lane. You know, and that's essentially what we're doing now is like, okay, we're gonna take this big scary step to make, but we've never felt more in alignment with our goals, right? Like we've never felt like more, like we're finally making progress towards what we're wanting to do in our lives because we only have one. That's, right? Yeah. So that's what I'm talking about when I sp- speak about being in alignment with your goals. And then when you have your, or your values, sorry, when you have your values and your goals so clearly outlined and you know how important they are to you, that's where like ruthlessly protecting your time and energy comes in. Because if you know that you have values of a certain type and that you're setting yourself on a path towards a certain goal, it gets a lot easier to not engage in other things, right? It gets a lot easier for me to get over the fact that we won't have as much room because I know we're going towards our goal. This is the most important thing. Do you think that also includes like facing our fears? Like when we think we're going to step outside a com- our comfort zone, uh, basically that creates an anxiety for a lot. Oh, 100%. Of- yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, anxiety hates change, right? Anxiety <laughs> hates change of any type. And that's where I talk about, you know, that's the, again, the identifying and whether you want to um, indulge your anxiety or or push through or take action, right? Yeah. So if you, right, because you're right. As soon, like, don't get me wrong. We've had crazy anxiety about making this huge life change. But I choose that at that point when that anxiety comes up, that I know what my values are. And I'm like, okay, I, this is just my anxiety. So I can engage and backtrack and say, we're changing our mind and go back to our place of safety, right? Our yeah. place of comfort. Yeah. Or I can say, okay, I know this. I know this is just my anxiety. It makes sense. My anxiety is flaring because this is going to be a huge change, but this is really what we want. So we're going to, I'm going to push through this anyways, right? I'm going to not give my anxiety as much power to control me. And I'm going to realize like, thanks for coming out anxiety, but I kind of know what's right for me now, (laughs) right? Mm. Is essentially what happens in my mind. I got to be like, thanks for, and that's what I talk about. Thanks for like, thanks for coming out anxiety. Like, thanks for your input. I'm going to do what I want to do. (laughs) That's funny. I was just thinking about if you view anxiety as a person and you talk to your anxiety, does that work? Like, does it really work? I mean, I think Okay, anxiety, you're here. I know I'm not listening to you. Like, this is okay. 
you can. I've had clients who do that. And the yeah. one was laughing because she was like, I was talking to my anxiety in the shower the other day. And I think it's like, there's one thing from talking about, you know, out loud, which if that yeah. works for you, then by all means, I think that getting out of your head and saying something like, okay, stop thinking this is just my anxiety can really like shake up the mind frame and remind yourself that you are dealing with it. But even I just often acknowledge it in my head, like, um, okay, this is just my anxiety, right? Okay. This is just my anxiety. It's not a big deal. Um, do I think about it as another person? I often think of mine as like a really annoying, like, um, parrot or like one of those like little devils on your shoulder kind of thing. Yeah, like I think yeah. about it as something kind of nattering in my ear, just like being a bit of a pet. Mm-hmm. Um, and then sometimes I think of it as that evil twin sister, like inside of me, right. That is like, you don't know anything. Why are you doing this? Like, you know, those sorts of like self-defeating thoughts. So whichever you conceptualize it as, I think that's really important. There's lots of actual research and therapy um, strategies around, you know, drawing what your mental health looks like, drawing what your mental illness mm-hmm. looks like. There was a whole artist series on, you know, what their depression looked like and how the animal, what the monster looked like and all that. And I think that can be really helpful, you know, personifying it in a sense of like, I'm in control and you're not, rather than this like nebulous thing that kind of comes over you and takes complete control. Oh my God. You know what? I was listening to a podcast and the guy talked about um, building a character around mm-hmm. your frustrations or your anxiety. Yep. And uh, so I named mine like Monster Cookie. Yeah. <laughs> and because I love sweets and when I get frustrated, so now I say, okay, Monster Cookie, or you just yeah. make it fun. So totally. it just like stop your thinking or absolutely <laughs> just for a yeah. moment. Yeah. It brings humor to the frustration or anxiety. So it kind of breaks it up a bit. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. That's, and that's what I do with, um, when I talk to clients and patients about how to help their children as well, that's one strategy mm. is that we like, you know, what does it look like? Is it a monster? What is it doing? You know, and, and name it and, you know, um, it can be a really helpful way to conceptualize emotions for children as well. So mm. yeah. That's good. Yeah. So based on, all of the women and the the mothers you've worked with, what's surprising ways they turn to to kind of numb or forget their anxiety? Let's not talk about like alcohol or drugs or like the really mm-hmm. obvious or big ones that we know. Are there some other ways that they kind of try to forget their oh, anxiety for sure. yeah. that we might not realize we're doing it? Yeah, I call this buffering. Um, okay. It's kind of like uh, you're you're buffering all your emotions, and and often we don't do it intentionally. Sometimes it's intentional. Yeah. Um, I was just doing it not too long ago. Actually, I've been having a stressful week, and so I just <laughs> found myself in the lunchroom, you know, grabbing cookies out of the shelf. So sweets is a big one. Okay. I find um, for myself, I always joke, but it's true. I'll find myself eating <laughs> chocolate chips out of the jar in the pantry, um, as just you know, like we're trying to uh, fill that emotional whatever it is, or fix that emotional problem that's happening. Um, a big one that I see a lot is a lot of women will oversleep, so they'll nap uh, a lot okay. um, to shut their brains off so they don't have to deal with the thought. Uh, social media obviously is a big one. There's a ton of scrolling and over-scrolling that happens. Um, most of us, I think, can reflect on a time that you're sitting down at night and just exhausted or feeling mm-hmm. really stressed and emotional, and you just check out by staring at your phone and, mm-hmm. and all that. So scrolling and social media is huge. Netflix. So we are in the Netflix and chill generation, I think right now. Yeah. There's lots of glamorizing about binge watching series and things, but I suspect, and I've seen actually a lot of times that if people are having a lot of stress, they just check right out in their mind by just watching mm. like show after show after show. Cause they don't have to process cause you can yeah. escape, right? You don't have to yeah. think about it. What else? Shopping, uh, online shopping. I've seen a lot of people fill emotional voids by buying things, which is, it can be a very damaging buffering activity. 
overworking is a big one. Um, filling your time over scheduling, making sure you don't have a moment possibly to get into your head is a big one. So like people will over schedule, over schedule because they don't like being alone with their own mind. Like if they're that's busy, they're not thinking. Yeah. So those are some of the yeah. most common ones. Yeah, that's good. And these aren't bad. Like I always want to say when I talk about buffering activities, it's never something to be ashamed of that this is happening. My approach to anything about your mental health and really almost anything in life is just objective observation. I really use a phrase a lot with my clients, like, isn't that interesting, right? Mm -hmm. So when you notice yourself doing something, I don't want you to be like, damn it, here I am in the pantry again, right? And shame yourself because shame has no place here. I'd rather want you to be like, oh, here I am eating pantry or chocolate chip in the pantry again. Isn't that interesting? What's going on with me, right? Like have an objective curiosity rather than, you know, shame and blame. Because I think when you're coming from a position of, why am I doing this? Then you're actually coming from a constructive position of, I want to learn more about myself and I want to make myself feel better rather than, oh, there you go again, right? You're doing this, you're shopping online again. Like it's because you're weak and you, you know, all this shame and blame that we tend to do in ourselves. Mm -hmm. Um, So I never want people to think that when I talk about buffering activities that they're bad, it's just that we tend to not have any better coping skills and those ones are the easiest ones to go to. So Mm -hmm. if you're doing that, I mean, I just told you, I still do some of them, right? I still have buffering activities. I use them now as clues. So when I do find myself doing certain things, I start to lean in. Isn't that interesting? Why is that happening? Oh, right. Because my anxiety is higher right now. Well, why is that? Because I go through my list of triggers. Oh, this makes sense. Right. And then use all my strategies to try to like help myself feel better. Mm -hmm. What have you seen have most mothers benefited from in helping reduce their anxieties? Um, so habits that I have found that have been helpful, um, exercise for sure, which I know Mm. most people don't want to hear. Um, (laughs) but honestly, like exercise is the best antidepressant and anti-anxiety we have available to us and it's free. So that's one regular checking in. So I encourage and teach a system of kind of monitoring your anxiety on a regular basis, tracking your self-care and tracking your buffering activities. So you have that awareness and it's more kind of the preventative um, the most, yeah, those would probably be the most common things using the thought management strategies that I teach people to use makes a big difference. Using that name it to tame it strategy, um, is really helpful. Starting a mindfulness meditation practice is super helpful because it allows you to have that objective awareness of your thoughts and what's happening. Some people, if they're not, you know, haven't done a lot of mindset work or thought work before, they actually have no idea what we're talking, what we are talking about. When I talk about like, observe your mind, they're like, I have no idea what you're talking about. So doing a mindfulness, like a meditation practice for 10 days, doing an introduction to meditation can be super helpful. So they can get in that position of being an observer of their thoughts. Mm-hmm. And I find meditation is also exceptional for actually reducing in the moment anxiety as well, because it, you know, encourages our brain to do something different rather than, and of course, reaching out and getting support. So um, socializing with friends, talking to somebody you trust, reaching out to a provider, um, who you have good rapport. That's one of the challenges in mental health that I think is that we don't always have a good rapport with our healthcare provider. And then we, we never try again. Um, if that's you and you've reached out to somebody before and you did the best ones, I really strongly encourage you to keep trying because not everyone understands yeah like you know understands like you might want them to but somebody will and I really encourage somebody I need to reach out a lot and then if need be you know you might even need pharmacological support to get anxiety under control mm-hmm. sometimes we don't even know what's caused like we say oh we're stressed out but we don't know what's the cause how do you start finding out 
Yeah. So that's where sometimes like a trigger list can be really helpful, but also going back to basic. So if you're feeling really, really anxious, you should usually go through a little bit of an audit of like, how much sleep have I had? Am I eating properly? You know, am I drinking enough water? Like just make sure your physical body is functioning properly for one. Mm -hmm. Take a good look at how you're living your life and your schedule. Have you been running off your feet for the last three weeks? Like, do you need time to relax? Like, you know, really take a good audit of what's going on because there is a reason. Almost certainly when people say, oh, and I do this all the time with my client and that's why I love client coaching clients because they'll come and they'll be like, I'm having a really bad week and I don't know why. And then when I start asking questions, they're like, oh, actually I know exactly why, right? Mm -hmm. So you just, sometimes it's in places we don't want to look and so just be aware of that. Sometimes you're like, oh, I, it's, I'm, I'm working a lot, but that can't possibly be it. And I'm like, really? Like probably is it, <laughs> you know? Or like I had a, a patient just the other day actually come in and ask me, um, you know, do you think this could be related to stress that I feel this way? I'm like, uh, yeah. Like if you're wondering, it's probably that. Like, mm -hmm. absolutely. It's mm -hmm. that. Most often you might not have the direct, like I'm anxious because of this, but if you go through, you know, what the most common things are and then go through your own individual trigger list, you'll usually find the reason. And then the reality is, is that some, it doesn't always have to have a reason. I know that's really uncomfortable for most of us to know. It doesn't always have to have a reason. Just like, you know, any other chronic illness, our bodies do things we don't understand. I'd rather you just accept what's happening and work on, you know, work, take action to help it, help yourself feel better rather than killing yourself trying to find, you know, why do I feel so anxious? Because okay. then you just fixated on it more, right? And you're just making it yeah. worse. Does that make sense? Yeah, that's good. And we hear a lot nowadays about self-care like mothers you have to have some you time it's so important mm -hmm. for your mental health of course some parents will say well i don't have time i have this i have after school activities i have this and this and this but you say we have to keep time at least for bare minimum for mm -hmm. ourselves me time Yeah. So that's also a bit of Pandora's box that you're opening, but that's okay. Um, I, I teach a five-day challenge. I did this in September, all about how to find more time for self-care and do self-care and the right mindset. So self-care is as much as an action as it is a mindset. I will never teach you how to do self-care if you genuinely can't bring yourself to believe it worthwhile. Mm -hmm. um, you have to believe that it's worthwhile and then it becomes easier to prioritize. It's not typically a time problem. And a lot of people will probably hate me because I say this. It's not a time problem. It's a priorities problem. Yeah. So again, that's where the passivity comes in. If you're in a passive mindset where everyone's needs are more important than yours, you will not ever have time for your self-care mm -hmm. because everyone else will be more important oh, all that's good. the time. That's so really good. It's really a priorities problem. And that goes back to, again, to tie into what else we were talking about. When I talked about the choice about having, you know, doing the apathy for the, versus the agency. So I have a lot of women come to me and be like, oh, I want to do more self-care, but I just don't have time. And then when I tell them, well, mm. it's actually a priorities problem. It's not a time problem, but I just can't. I'm like, that's the apathy part, mm. right? Do you want to or not? It's literally a matter of do you want to or not, right? Because I have, what do I have? Three different jobs and a mom, like I'm a mom and, right? And I still find time. I'm not saying it has to be, you know, a luxurious bubble bath for an hour. That's not realistic, <laughs> but right. And, and if you get that, woohoo, go girl, do it. But what I'm talking about is that your self-care doesn't have to be complicated. It just has to be an intentional period of time that you either check in with yourself, which is what I recommend my clients do. You take five minutes to do some journaling, a meditation or something and actually track, you know, how am I feeling today? That could be honestly all your self-care is stopping for five minutes and sitting down with a journal or a cup of tea and be like, how do I feel right now? Like, how am I feeling? 
what do I need right now? What do I need in my life? What do I, what am I not getting? Am I getting enough sleep? Do I need to make sure I go to bed earlier? Like just checking in with yourself. That can be your self care, right? Mm-hmm. If you have more time or when you get, you know, better at prioritizing it, then it get some friggin' exercise in move your body. Nothing makes us feel better than endorphins mm-hmm. from exercise, right? So I'm a huge proponent. If you can fit, if you got 20 minutes, like do some stretching, pull up free YouTube yoga, like mm-hmm. just do something right for yourself yeah. because then people go, Oh, but I'm so, you know, I just don't have the time. Well, then you need to schedule less. You need to start to put yourself first more and that's okay, right? Your children will be okay if they're not in every single adverse after school activity, right? Yeah. Your children will also be okay if you sit them in front of a television screen for 30 minutes so you can go and exercise, Mm -hmm. right? But we choose to not prioritize ourselves and then label it like we don't have time. I'm, I'm kind of bold in the fact that I call bullshit on it. <laughs> like, I, like, honestly, I do. Um, yes, just say it. it just right? <laughs> I think it's a priorities problem. It's not a time problem. Because if it was a time problem, I would not have the time. Guaranteed, right? Yeah. I, I make the time um, for it every single day. And I'm very lucky in that my husband and I have built our marriage to the fact that we both believe that. And mm-hmm. so we work together to help each other prioritize ourselves. And we make sure that we're, you know, I'm making sure that he's getting time for himself. He's making sure I'm time, time for myself and vice versa. We're doing it for ourselves and each other. So, so it's a mindset. Self-care is a, as much of a mindset as it is an activity. I'd even go further to say my beliefs about self-care are also the beliefs about living in alignment with your values. You're not taking care of yourself if you're denying yourself living by living to your values. You know what I mean? Yeah. There's a lifestyle. And making sure that what you're taking the time to do, it's something that you enjoy. Like, don't force yes. it. Just something. Absolutely. Enjoy. It should be enjoyable. It should be fun. It should be yeah. you're like, okay, now sidebar, I don't love jumping on the treadmill every morning, but I know how good it is for me, right? I know how good I feel yeah. after. Yeah. And some days, yeah, I don't want to journal, but every time it's therapeutic, every time I'm like, wow, I'm glad I did that because something came up that I can process. You know, like mm-hmm. it's, it's gauging in action versus wallowing <laughs> in pity. Yes. Kind of like motherhood is hard, but you don't have to be like stuck in the, in pity, like, and just be like, this is really terrible. You can be like, this is hard, but I'm going to like structure my life so that I get enough time for myself. And so that I can feel like a full mom showing up for my kids and I'm not irritable yes. and angry with them all the time. Right. It's all that sort of stuff. It's, yes. it's really like taking charge. That's what I think of as motherhood should be now, not this, mm-hmm. you know, selfless martyrdom that we've been kind of told is how we're supposed to behave. It should be like the mother should be the matriarch, right? Queens don't eat last. Like queens eat first, right? So like, like make sure you're, you know, you. But we've been told that's selfish, right? Don't God, a mother yeah, never leave, leave the last kids, piece for right? your like, kids. No man, yeah. I'm done with that. I feel like that chapter is so long gone. We need to move into this this empowered motherhood where our daughters are watching us be raised as powerful women that are taking care of ourselves. Because I haven't even mentioned this in this hour long interview. But like, what are we teaching our kids if we're not prioritizing ourselves? Are exactly. We prioritize themselves no we're not right Mm. like my two-year-old twins will come up to me and say mommy I'm taking time for myself and I'm like perfect because they know that phrase because I've said it to them Mm. so many times they don't see me being like okay yeah I'll do it later when you had your 17 things that you need for me and then I'll go right it's the Mm -hmm. same reason why I eat my dinner and I don't allow my kids to climb on me mommy's eating her dinner right now go on you know sit on your own chair it's respect it's about teaching your children that you are important and that you are valued and mm-hmm. that you deserve space and time for yourself. Exactly. 
One of the things I've heard many times, and I know I've been guilty of saying this too, you have kids and you haven't seen someone in a while and they're like, oh, how are you doing? The answer most of us usually say is, oh, so busy, just so busy or yeah. tired. That's always the answer. And I mm -hmm. feel like we're being busy has become like a badge of honor in a way oh, oh my gosh man. I was I'm, just thinking about this before I'm, I came on I'm so and <laughs> not I'm so important but I feel mm -hmm. like I'm doing a lot mm -hmm. and when you say that it's like oh really you know but yeah. you had wrote that we have to think about the why why are we doing like mm -hmm. this activity why are mm -hmm. you doing those errands mm -hmm. I thought that was really good Yeah, no, I actually for, I forget where I got it from. Oh, Courtney Carver's book, Soulful Simplicity. It's so good. And she, at one point in one chapter, talks about banning the word busy from your vocabulary mm -hmm. because I 100% agree with you. Being busy <laughs> has become glamorized. Yes. We use it as, you know, like you said, a bit of a badge of honor. And I actually hate it. I feel like it's a bad word. When I hear it coming out of my own mouth, I'm like, damn it. Because yeah. I don't like being busy. Like today, for example, is a jam-packed day and that's what I've switched to doing. And sometimes it's like, it, I think there's a difference just as a little bit of an aside. I think there's a difference between having a jam-packed life full of things you love and being busy with errands. Okay. Mm. So I'm, I've built my life in such a way that I love what I do. I love doing interviews. I love coaching women. I love my job in the office. I love what I do. And when your life is jam-packed full of things you love, like I can't think of a better way to live. When you're leaving one thing that you love to go to something else that you love, you're like, wow, how lucky am I, right? Yes. And, and I think that that's what we should be looking for and thinking of it as like, wow, it's a jam-packed life of awesome things. Being busy of like running around like a chicken with our head cut off with a hundred errands that like, why am I doing this? Why do I, why, <laughs> right? That's the busyness that I don't think is good. And I think that we need to really take time to step back. When women tell me like, I'm just way too busy. There's not five minutes in my day. Mm -hmm. Self-care, I'm like, girl, you got to reevaluate that. Like mm -hmm. you've got to start to consider, are you really living the way you want to live? Are you really like, do your kids need to be in all those things? And I think we just are breeding a generation of busy or busy people because we try to be busy because often we don't want to feel our emotions. So we keep ourselves really busy so we don't have to process them. We don't have to deal with uncomfortable conversations. We don't have to deal with all that stuff, the silence <laughs> of emotion. Mm -hmm. We keep ourselves super busy and then we keep our kids super busy because we're so terrified that they're going to be bored. God help us. They're bored. You know, it could be terrible. In fact, it's wonderful for children to be bored that we're just keep teaching them that that's what they have to do. And I think that's honestly why we're having an anxiety epidemic in kids too. Yeah. We're not meant to go at this pace, right? Like this pace is not for humans. It's for machines. Exactly. <laughs> and even machines break down, right? So... I think that the busy, I 100% agree with you when I, and this week that I'm on is um, my hospital rounds week. So every mm -hmm. single day I'm in the clinic or sorry, in the hospital rounding on the admitted patients. And this week is never a good week for me because my schedule's so jammed that I feel really chaotic and I feel my anxiety goes higher and that sort of thing. And it's always this week that I realize how much I don't like being busy, <laughs> that it's mm -hmm. not a badge of honor. It's not you know, something productivity as much as I love it is not something to mark your worth on. <laughs> so we have to really filter through yeah. our daily to-do list and see what's really important. Absolutely. Yeah. Like get clear on like, how do you actually like spending your time? Which sometimes, and it, this used to be me, but a lot of moms say, I don't even know what I like anymore because I don't do anything for myself. And I'm like, oh, you have a, you know, and that's, it's sad. And I'm like, no, then you need to start carving out time and ignore what that is. 
because we're not meant to go through life not loving our life. Exactly. So get some, you know, carve some time out, find what do you love? What's important to you? You know, what do you want them to say? I, you know, at your funeral, like she ran around busy all the time and she got lots done or like, no, yeah. <laughs> you, right? <laughs> you want them to say like, she made time for things that mattered. She made sure she was filled up so she could pour into others. You know, she lived a life that was true to herself because mm. she knew what she wanted and loved. Like, I yeah. think that's literally our whole mission on this earth is make sure we're doing what is most important to us so that we can do the best in helping others. And you can't do that if you're just depleting yourself constantly. Yeah. Um, I spoke with a few mothers on the podcast and the one thing they had in common as an advice for mothers is they said, we have to learn to let go of mm-hmm. trying to do a lot. If the car is messy, fine. It's messy because other things are more important for you right now. You know, you're not going to die if the car is a mess, things like that. And Mm -hmm. I think sometimes we fear being judged Mm -hmm. if some things aren't in order all the time. Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. for me, I've learned that in a big way and uh, it's, it's helped tremendously. So yeah, you kind of pick your battles, right? Like, yeah, exactly. That's what I always say. I'm going to just, this is not my battle today. And, and that's okay. It, mm-hmm. We don't have to do everything. In fact, we can't. It's not possible. And we have to choose what we can do. And we'll, the things that we can and should be doing are the ones that are the most important. Mm-hmm. I want to talk about one big thing, insomnia. Because I think mm-hmm. when we have anxiety, a lot of us are not sleeping properly and that creates, we don't feel good and health problems and mood problems, everything. You had some drug-free sleep aids. I was wondering mm-hmm. what advice you could give to mothers. Yeah, what sure. So I'm actually, I'm actually in the midst of recording a course for this exact thing. It's going to be launching in the new year because I work with a lot of people who struggle with sleep difficulties. And one of the biggest takeaways is a lot of us seem to think that sleep, not sleeping is a problem when you have Mm -hmm. insomnia. Um, And it's actually worrying about not sleeping. That's the problem. Mm. Um, As a society, we tend to catastrophize not sleeping. Like we might die, like if we don't get a night sleep and, and being tired, don't get me wrong, is terrible. And I think, you know, fatigue in the early months of motherhood is probably one of the biggest reasons why we have such a huge prevalence of maternal mental illness Mm -hmm. is because like sleep is so critical to mental health. And there are lots of different things that you can do again, catch yourself in those anxious thoughts about sleep and replace them so that you reduce the stress about sleep and thereby help yourself fall asleep easier. There's also strategies that you can use at night to help quiet the mind because usually one of the biggest reasons I'm told people can't sleep is because they can't shut their mind off or Mm -hmm. their mind is very busy. And that's very normal for our brains because when we're not using our brains to do something like a task, um, our brains are wired to solve problems. And so as soon as we lie down at night, you know, it's common that our brains are like, perfect, I'm not thinking about anything. I'm going to process this. I'm going to process everything about your day and I'm going to fix all these problems in your sleep. And, you know, and that's what REM sleep is, is like mm-hmm. where we consolidate all of our stuff in our brains. And so our brains are really, they're overachievers and they're like, I'm going to fix this problem right now while you're laying down. And it's like, or it's three in the morning when you've woken up. And so we have to give our brain a job instead of letting it go to its own devices. There's a lot of strategies that you can do, like, you know, different counted breathing exercises, um, different meditations. There's research on listening to talk radio while you're trying to fall asleep. It's essentially engaging the brain in a task because your brain actually can't multitask. It can only do one thing at a time. So if you give it something to do, it can't think about your day. 
So ah, that I've never heard that before, but yeah, smart. Yeah. So, um, yeah, so that's just kind of a little bit of a summary. There's yeah. lots, like I said, I'm doing yeah. a whole course on sleep for that reason, because insomnia is so common and the dependence on sleep aids is a problem. Uh-huh. So, so that, that's mm-hmm. one of the strategies and they go hand in hand with anxiety. So mm-hmm. insomnia, I think actually sleep difficulties is one of the symptoms of untreated anxiety because your anxiety is your right alert danger detection system. And so if it's constantly surveying your environment for threat throughout the day, it doesn't just quiet down and go to sleep at night. It's like also going to keep on high alert throughout the evening mm. and night. So that's why you have a hard time falling asleep and wake up frequently throughout the night. Mm. So if you can get your anxiety under control, you tend to start to sleep better as well. Yeah. For me, I've never been a good sleeper, but um, it's, I know they say don't go on your screens at night, but I have that orange light. But when I wake up and I can't, can't, can't go to bed because my brain is like thinking and it's not stopping, I watch TV show, just kind of tune out. And well, then- that's just it, right? So your brain's engaging in that thing, in yeah. watching a movie or something like that. I'd encourage actually, um, I mean, by all means, if that works for you. Or reading or... Right, yeah. reading or like I said, talk radio or sleep stories are really good as well because mm-hmm. again, it's something that's not engaging... Your, like your visual cortex, yeah. but it is, it's engaging your brain. So you have to listen. The brain can't listen and think at the same time. Mm. So there's an app that actually have sleep stories on them that are just stories designed to talk you into going to sleep <laughs> and they can work really, really well because you're listening. And then before you know it, you're asleep. So that's, that's one strategy that I typically will recommend among lots of others, but yeah. Based on your medical experience, do you think that we as a society are often too quick to medicate our feelings or anxiety instead of working through them? Are you seeing that? Um, that's a tricky one. It really yeah, depends on the population. Okay. Um, so I'd have to say there's either like people who are probably too ready to medicate and don't uh-huh. want to deal with the stuff uh-huh. or people who are very resistant to medicate and mm-hmm. could probably use it. <laughs> so it's like, it's really like, I wouldn't say that as a society, I don't know. It depends, I think. And it depends on the interaction between the provider and that providers or the, and the patient and the provider's experience and, you know, their experience with mental illness. I think with my couple years here that I've been doing strictly this, I feel like I have a really good sense of who might benefit and who might not. Mm-hmm. Whereas if you're a provider who maybe doesn't do, do as much mental health, you might be a little bit more um, apt because you don't know what else to offer someone to offer the medication. Mm-hmm. And so I, I couldn't say as a blanket that everybody I think is jumping a bit too soon to medication. I think that the trend to wanting to get rid of our emotions is common. <laughs> the yes. way we do it is not always medication. We're much more likely, like I, this is why there's been, of course, a huge surge in the interest in CBD because CBD is, you know, supposedly good for anxiety. What's um, CBD? Uh, like medical marijuana. Okay. So there's a lot of interest in, you know, CBD oil or cannabinoids for anxiety. And I think, and, you know, alcohol, like I think anything where we're like humans just tend to have a low tolerance for discomfort and emotions are uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And so I think as a human population, we tend to, if we're not medicating ourselves with like actual pharmacological drugs, we tend to be medicating ourselves, not everyone, but a lot of people do medicate in another way. Mm-hmm. Um, like alcohol or marijuana or you know whatever their choice is, and so as a species, I think we probably tend to want to make our emotions go away rather than feel them. But I can't say specifically as a as a trend that I've seen personally that people okay. want to just jump to medications. More okay. often than not, I my own practice is that I'll see people, I'll explain my my approach to anxiety, and I usually encourage them to do a good 
um, you know, month at least trial of doing five to 10 minutes of self-care a day um, and seeing a therapist for, you know, one or two times. And then we revisit in four to six weeks and see how things are doing. Mm. And at that point, discuss whether there's, you know, enough need to go on to a medical therapy Okay. It's appropriate. Okay. Yeah. So you offer group coaching one-on-one, you're, you're launching a few different courses online. Yeah. Can you tell us where can we find you? What courses will be available? Yeah. Yes. I work with clients one-on-one. I almost always have one-on-one spots available. Um, and then I also, and those about an eight week program that I work with people one-on-one. And then I have a group coaching program that runs roughly three times a year or quarterly, depending on how ambitious I'm feeling. Um, <laughs> and um, that's also an eight week small group program where I walk you through similar, similar processes, just not quite as one-on-one obviously. And then, yeah, I have a couple courses. So my current course that's open now with podcast is Journey to Calm, which is my specifically my anxiety management course for moms designed by a mom. And that is, um, will be launching again, I'm sure in the spring of 2020. And then I'm currently in production of Rested Your Sleep Solution, which is going to be similar. I think it's going to be five modules all about drug-free solutions for insomnia. And that will be launching over the holidays, I hope, (laughs) and into the new year. And then I also have some free um, resources. I have an anxious or ultimate guide to anxious moments, which is five steps that I use myself to get through those really powerful anxious moments that I have for free for download on my website at carlygrew.com. And I also have my Facebook group, Anxiety Proof Mama, which is about 400 women. Um, and in there, I do lots of like free trainings and challenges and, and share, you know, tips and strategies. And then coming in the new year, hopefully the first quarter of 2020, I'm also going to be launching my Momentum membership, which is going to be a monthly membership program, a nice uh, budget-friendly cost so that we can do, I can do more coaching with more women at one time. And so that will be a monthly kind of theme each month and uh, will involve, you know, like live trainings and Q&A sessions as well as PDF downloads and things like that. So you can put things into practice to get your momentum. Yeah. So those are, those are all the offerings, which sounds like a lot actually. Um, (laughs) Now that I say them all out, I'm like, wow, that's a lot to have done in 11 months. Um, But but yeah, so you can find me on Instagram. That's my primary platform, which is at Carly Crew and on uh, Facebook, Anxiety Proof Mama or on my website, carlycrew.com. Perfect. I just have a few rapid fire questions. So answer them as quickly or with less words as possible. How is coaching different to therapy? Yeah, that's a <laughs> just word. <laughs> um, coaching is, I would say, more personalized, and uh, the co- I, I don't know. I can't say that because even therapy. Oh, this is a bad question for quick for rapid fire. Um, <laughs> coaching is me trying to help you figure out your own solutions, whereas therapy and consulting is kind of me telling you different solutions and then letting you go on your merry way. There, um, that's good. Yeah. <laughs> okay. What's the one thing that creates the most anxiety, which we don't realize? Mm, passivity. <laughs> okay. Okay. Yeah. What's one thing that has helped your mothers the most in releasing anxiety? Exercise. With the holidays around the corner and we know that increases anxiety levels for a lot of people, what tips would you tell mothers to do or not to do to help reduce their anxiety or overwhelm during these busy seasons? Mm-hmm. So um, always question whether you need to do something, like question whether you actually need to do something, because I think of us, a lot of us think we need to do everything during mm-hmm. the holidays. We need to be everywhere. 
listen to that inner voice and intuition that tells you you don't want to do things um, and live by your values, right? So if, you know, having a ton of gifts at Christmas is not part of your values, start to question it, start to look at whether, you know, going to every single dinner is important. And then really examine your boundaries because the holidays are a really challenging time for family interactions and um, feeling like you're feeling need to do things, feeling guilty about things. So just be really mindful of what's happening in your relationship and monitor for where you need better boundaries. Mm. How much should we show our kids our anxiety? Um, I think as much as you have it because they Mm. need to see how to process it. Mm. That's good. What's your why these days? Um, Probably to, I have so many whys, (laughs) but my big focus right now is, um, maybe career wise, your, your yeah. So, um, is my big why is financial freedom so that we can, Mm. um, explore the world and travel and bring our children with us. That's nice. Yeah. Yeah. Beautiful. Okay. One last question. I ask everyone that comes on the podcast. We all know that being a mother, a parent is a roller coaster of emotions and experiences. Keeping motherhood inspired, what one thing have you found kept you inspired and energized throughout your mom journey? Um, I guess there's lots of things, but one resource um, that I really highly recommend is that I learned a lot from is um, is Simple Families. Um, Dr. Danae Barahona is uh, runs Simple Families. It's a website. She has podcasts, and I just really resonate with a lot of her stuff. And she always makes me feel like I'm not failing as much as I think I am, and um, and really actually has inspired me to step out with my own expertise and and brand myself and try to help moms too. So I think finding a passion, I guess, would be the summary is finding what your passion is because I think when you can be a mom and have a passion you still feel refreshed when you're just being a mom Mm. well that's it thank you (laughs) (laughs) that's awesome (laughs) thanks for having me thank you for listening to another episode of citrus love keeping motherhood inspired podcast if you think someone would enjoy to listen to this episode please share it with them can share the link wherever you're listening or go to our website at www.citruslove.com episode and the number where you will find the episode as well as all the information about the guests or the specific episode. The best way to get our podcast ranked is by leaving me a review wherever you're listening. Two, three, four, five, six stars. Whatever you feel reflect podcast, this will not only let me know what needs to be improved as well well as what you particularly love make sure to subscribe to the podcast so you'll get the next episode and thank you so much for listening talk to you next time bye guys bye.